1959, a team of Soviet researchers at the Institute of Cytology and Genetics in Novosibirsk, Siberia, they began an experiment that could have cost them more than their jobs. It could have led to their imprisonment or even their execution. Fortunately, a scientifically educated journalist used their influence with the first secretary of the Communist Party in the USSR to shield the scientists and protect their experiment. And because of her efforts, an experiment that is regarded by many to be a landmark study in evolutionary biology, it was able to continue. Even though this experiment was a success and it stimulated many additional research projects, it has come under attack by scientists who have argued that the results of the experiment don't actually demonstrate what the researchers claim. What was this experiment that inspired intrigue ranging from the oppressive politics of Soviet pseudoscience to the academic politics of modern science? Well, the experiment concerned foxes, evolution, and the domestication of dogs. I'm Phil Gibson, and welcome to Biota. In this episode, we're going to explore a classic experiment in evolutionary biology, the Russian farm fox experiment that was conducted by Dr. Dmitry Belyaev, his students, and other collaborators at the USSR Academy of Sciences. Dr. Belyaev wanted to explore the scientific mysteries of animal domestication and hopefully gain better insights into the events and the steps that led to the domestication and evolution of humans' first animal companion, the dog. Our story begins in the 1940s, when Dmitry Belyaev was a young geneticist who had survived his military service during World War II and had just secured a job at the Moscow Institute for Fur Breeding. The young geneticist was particularly interested in the genetics of animal domestication. Now let's take a minute and have a quick time out to clarify a very important point, the difference between domestication and training. Although they can be applied to plants, animals, fungi, or, or really any living things, let's primarily consider these ideas of domestication and training as they apply to animals. Domestication involves breeders using selective breeding and artificial selection to change traits in an animal lineage so that they can perform a task better or, or maybe be used for agricultural food production. Now, the domesticated animals that they would have used are typically friendlier than the wild species that they're related to, and they're friendlier from birth and into adulthood in most instances. And they may also have some slightly different appearances in certain features. Now, in contrast, training is just teaching. Animals can be trained in some instances to display what we think of as tame behaviors through conditioned responses that they've learned, perhaps due to extensive interaction with the animals while they're juveniles, or, or maybe only during a specific window of time, the animals are relatively friendly. However, their offspring will have no greater tendency to be more friendly than a wild animal would. There are definitely interactions and overlap between the two ideas of domestication and training, and they definitely shape one another. But for our purposes, think of domestication as involving a genetic change in the behaviors or features of a species, but training is just teaching and changing the behaviors of a single individual. So what Belyaev was interested in was domestication. He had read Charles Darwin's book on animal domestication, and he was particularly intrigued by the idea that although different species had been domesticated for different uses and to perform different tasks in many instances, early breeders would have likely chosen to breed individual animals that interacted well with people and weren't aggressive towards them. So, in addition to being specifically bred to help with some type of task, 
breeders may have also been indirectly selecting individuals that just had a friendly disposition. Now, Darwin also noticed that in addition to tameness, there seemed to be other traits that tended to be more common in domesticated species than their wild relatives. In domesticated animals, traits like large patches of white fur, something called piebald coloration, that tends to be fairly common. And researchers also noticed that in domesticated species, the skulls of adults tended to retain some of the, the features of a juvenile skull, which is different from what you would find in the wild individuals. They also noticed that in some domesticated animals, they also have floppy ears. And so these traits, again, not really common in wild species, but they tended to show up in domesticated species, even though they weren't traits that the breeders were selecting on. So this loose collection of traits that had been observed in livestock and other domesticated animals was given the name of, of the, the domestication syndrome. Now, this concept of a domestication syndrome was originally developed by plant breeders to talk about crops, but it was somewhat clumsily applied to animals in a few instances. Although it has happened that this term has occasionally been attributed to Darwin or Belyaev's work, they never used it. And so we'll come back to that point later in the episode. So anyhow, getting back to the farm fox experiment, academician Belyaev wondered why traits that were not selected for or chosen as a basis for breeding in any way, why would they tend to appear in domesticated species ranging from cattle to rabbits? Now again, not every one of these traits will show up in every domesticated species, but the patterns of them showing up was frequent enough that Belyaev thought it had to mean something. Recognizing the abundance of foxes at his disposal through the Institute, Belyaev designed an experiment to test his ideas and explore not only the genetic mechanisms underlying domestication, but also try to figure out what might have happened when humans domesticated our first animal companion, the dog. Just as his experiment was beginning, however, Belyaev's research team received terrifying news. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev would be visiting the research labs at the Fur Institute where Belyaev was working. The scientists were very worried because, and this is according to eyewitness accounts, Khrushchev was somewhat upset to find out that geneticists, they were still conducting experiments in Soviet research labs. He thought that Lysenko and his government scientists had stopped genetics research, and Khrushchev wondered why these people hadn't been dismissed. Now remember, Soviet science at that time, especially biology, was still under the strict control of the scientific charlatan Trofim Lysenko. Now, if you've listened to my previous episodes about the botanist Nikolai Vavilov, you know how Lysenko and his completely incorrect views of basic biology led to the death of many great biologists, and it hobbled Russian agriculture for decades. Lysenko didn't think that genetics was real. He thought that organisms responded to their environment, and he didn't believe in heritable genes that could determine an organism's feature. Lysenko considered Mendel to be a fraud, and any Russian geneticists who studied this topic, they were traitors. So because of his beliefs and his powerful position in the Soviet government and the scientific establishment at that time, studying genetics, talking about genetics, conducting genetics research in the Soviet Union, that made a scientist an enemy of the state. Now again, you can hear how far Lysenko pushed this strange ideology and how it hindered Soviet science and agriculture in the biota episodes dedicated to Nikolai Vavilov, and that'll give you a better perspective on this lethal grip that Lysenko held on science and the extensive damage he did during his career. So getting back to Belyaev and the Fox research, although the scientists at the Institute expected disaster, Belyaev's research experienced some incredibly good luck 
when Secretary Khrushchev visited. You see, Khrushchev was accompanied by his daughter, Rada, on this trip. She was a journalist, and she knew a thing or two about biology. She recognized the value of Belyaev's research and the flaws of Lysenkoism. Somehow, she convinced her father to let the Fox research continue. Fortunately, Belyaev had disguised his study as an investigation of behavior and physiology, not genetics, so it didn't directly conflict with Soviet ideology supporting Lysenko. That's what doomed Vavilov. He was open about his genetics. Belyaev hid it for a little while. Well, Khrushchev, he needed to do something. He knew his various ministers of science were not happy that research that, for all practical purposes, resembled genetics, that it was taking place, and that this research station had appeared to have gone rogue. Geneticists were clearly violating Lysenko's and therefore the Soviet Union's official policies on science. Now, Khrushchev, he wasn't a scientist, and he didn't have time to figure out who was right or if the research was illegal or not. So, he fired the director of the institute and promoted Belyaev into that position. So now, academician Belyaev could pursue his studies of canine domestication and evolution with the indirect endorsement of the top Soviet leader. Now, the experiment Belyaev conducted was incredibly elegant in its simplicity. Belyaev and his team started by surveying a population of silver foxes, and this is the species Vulpes vulpes, and these foxes were being raised for their fur, nothing else. The scientists identified 30 male and 100 female foxes that showed friendly or somewhat tame behaviors, at least more so than the other foxes. In writing about this study, Belyaev's longtime collaborator, Dr. Lyudmila Trute, acknowledged that the initial population of foxes was probably already tamer than their wild relatives, and they knew that this Russian fox population was established with foxes from a Canadian population that did display a range of behaviors from somewhat friendly to aggressive. So they had an idea of the behavioral features of their initial genetic population to begin with. After choosing their foxes, the scientists began carefully breeding pairs of them so that there would be no significant effects of inbreeding or any type of genetic drift, two types of sampling errors that could have invalidated the results of their experiment. After mating, the researchers would watch the baby foxes, baby foxes are called kits, and they would note their behavior. The researchers followed strict criteria and procedures during observations so that any behaviors displayed by the kits would not be due to training or the consequences of interactions with humans. The researchers would evaluate the kits based on their response to being offered food and the response to being petted. The responses to these two activities were evaluated monthly, starting at one month of age through eight months of age when the foxes became sexually mature. At eight months, tameness was evaluated a final time, and each fox was assigned to one of three categories. The top 10% of the foxes in the friendliest category were then allowed to breed and produce the next generation. And then the evaluation process would be repeated on each litter of kits that were produced. After six generations, Belyaev's teams noticed that the population had changed. Some foxes were displaying what the researchers called elite domesticated behavior. These foxes were clearly friendlier. They would wag their tails, whimper, lick researchers' hands, and do all of the things that we think about a friendly puppy or a friendly dog doing. But that wasn't all that changed. Similar to differences between dog and wolf skulls, the skulls of friendly adult foxes were retaining proportions and features that are typically found in juvenile fox skulls. As expected, large white patches of fur, remember piebald coloration? That was becoming more common in the friendly fox population. 
These traits had occasionally appeared in the original populations in Russia and Canada, but much less frequently and less consistently than what was now being observed in Belyaev's friendly foxes. So yes, Belyaev had demonstrated that selecting on one trait, tameness, was somehow genetically related to changes in other traits that were not being selected or used in any way as a basis for breeding. Belyaev concluded that somehow these traits were all unified in some way and that the relationship among them was revealed through this process of domestication. As he thought about this, Belyaev knew that tameness involves different features of an animal's overall behavior or, or its personality if you want to think about it that way. Different aspects of behavior are known to be influenced by the mixture of hormones and neurotransmitters that are acting throughout an animal's body. And there are also the receptors on cell surfaces and inside of cells that bind these chemicals, which cause the cell to respond to them by initiating or terminating or regulating or somehow modulating different systems throughout the entire body. And this regulation of systems is particularly important during the early stages of development. Belyaev further reasoned that because these chemical messengers often work in multiple systems, any selection on a trait that influences the production or the activities of these chemicals will consequently alter other processes and pathways that they are involved with. For example, glutamate is a neurotransmitter that interacts with something called an NMDA receptor as part of fear responses. However, glutamate and NMDA receptors also play a role in learning and memory. Now, selection for tameness, which you can also think of as being less fearful, what they found is that this results in increased activity of glutamate and its NMDA receptors to produce calm behavior. But it also indirectly increased the ability to learn and remember in those less fearful individuals. However, Belyaev needed additional experiments to confirm if this was actually what the breeding experiments were telling him. First, Belyaev's team measured levels of different chemicals in the foxes, things like glucocorticoids, a type of stress hormone, and they measured serotonin, what's sometimes called the happiness neurotransmitter. The stress hormone levels were significantly lower, and the serotonin levels were significantly higher in foxes bred to be friendly than in the original fox population. Now, second, Belyaev conducted another breeding experiment, but this one was the opposite of the friendly fox breeding program. This time, they bred foxes for aggressive behavior. These foxes did not display any of the traits that appeared in the friendly foxes. And, as was expected, their patterns of hormone and neurotransmitter levels were the opposite of those found in the friendly fox lineages. These experiments demonstrated that there was a heritable genetic and biochemical basis to tame and aggressive behaviors that could be shaped by selection. However, Demonstrating the heritable basis of behavior and domestication was one thing. Identifying the specific genes that were responsible for the behavior, well, that's something completely different. Now, looking into that topic, Belyaev and his team considered how a majority of domesticated species are mammals. Therefore, they must share similar systems, similar genes and molecular pathways, controlling homologous systems and networks of interacting genes. Because of this, it's not surprising that traits considered indicators of domestication would appear in these related domesticated species because selection on tameness is really acting on the same underlying systems and genes. Mutations in these genes should then have similar consequences across different species. 
there isn't time to explain the entire process that they went through to identify and compare specific genes, so let me just summarize it by saying that based on results from studies of many different domesticated species, the molecular geneticists on the team had a subset of specific genes to focus their attention on when they were searching for these differences in the, the genes of friendly and aggressive and I guess what we call normal foxes. So what they found is that there are genetic differences, what we can consider different alleles, among the groups of foxes. For example, they found differences in the gene sequence of something called the SOAR-CS1 gene that plays a role in memory and learning. They found differences in multiple genes that express in the prefrontal cortex and in the basal forebrain, and these genes function in neural information processing, serotonin function, and interactions among neurotransmitter pathways. When they looked at these same gene regions in other domesticated species, things like dogs, cats, lab mice, and rabbits, they also found mutations in them that were different from the wild relatives. They also found differences in other gene regions whose functions aren't yet known, but they did find significant differences between domesticated animals and their wild relatives in these regions. These results clearly indicate that there are shared genetic systems and common biochemical pathways that were acted on through selection and shaped during the process of domestication in different species. Now, the results of the Russian farm fox experiment led to it being hailed as a landmark study in evolutionary biology and genetics. To mark the importance of this work, there's even a beautiful statue in front of the Institute where Belyaev worked, which shows academician Belyaev sitting on a bench with one of his foxes to just honor his tremendous achievement. But then something happened. In 2019, a group of researchers questioned the validity and the conclusions of the farm fox experiment. They argued that because the foxes came from a, a fur farm in Prince Edward Island in Canada, that they were not truly wild and couldn't be used for this kind of study. They also contended that the domestication syndrome doesn't really exist, and that the scientists studying this phenomenon were really just cherry-picking their data. The researchers asserted that their analyses of the literature undermined Belyaev's research, and that his data did not support his conclusions because the domestication syndrome... Again, in their conclusion, it's not a real thing. Now, this paper caused an uproar among many biologists. While their interpretation of the work may have resulted in a widely shared publication, it didn't appear to shake the confidence of Dr. Trout, who, well into her 80s, is still guiding the Farm Fox project, and she was compelled to respond to the challengers. In her carefully worded reply, Dr. Trout and another scientist in a separate letter to the editor basically described how the scientists devaluing their research had made arguments that were nothing more than what they referred to as straw foxes that they wanted to knock down with their specious arguments. Now, Dr. Trout responded how the research team had considered the genetic history of their fox population, how they sampled from a large randomly mating population, and how they designed and implemented a rigorous breeding program to prevent inbreeding. Trout noted that Dr. Belyaev never argued that domestication syndrome was an actual specific scientific process or phenomenon, but that instead it's just a, a general term encompassing what Darwin had noticed about domesticated species tending to show a curious collection of traits that showed up in them more frequently than their wild relatives. Belyaev did not argue that this was a defined set of specific phenotypes that would be found in all domesticated species. Again, remember, 
The term domestication syndrome was originally applied to agricultural plants, and it wasn't even used in the scientific literature until a year before Belyaev's death in 1985, so it's unlikely he was studying that specific topic as they proposed. But above all else, whether the domestication syndrome is a real thing or not, Dr. Troop pointed out how the Russian farm fox experiment had clearly identified specific predicted changes in the animals and their genomes, which was not negated by any of the arguments that had been offered. It seemed to her that this group was actually doing some cherry-picking of data, too, and the results of her years of work were still valid. Now, in my opinion on this, after reading some of Dr. Belyaev's work and looking at what the, the challengers have said, is that he wasn't really trying to prove the existence of a domestication syndrome in any way. He was trying to reconstruct what might have happened during domestication and identify some of the mechanisms underlying how it happened, not just in foxes and dogs, but cattle, sheep, and other species. Belier wondered why any of these traits, not a specific set, but why any would tend to show up in domesticated animals when this occurred. And based on the publications that have come from his and other studies, the farm fox research has clearly identified several genetic mechanisms that may be affected during domestication in general, and in canine domestication in particular. So in my opinion, the farm fox data demonstrate exactly what they claim to show. So, where is this research now? Well, the question of what biological mechanism ties all of this together has been lingering since the beginning of the experiment. Why would selection on tameness alter skull shape, skeletal features, coat coloration, or reproductive behavior? One idea that's been put out there does seem to be gaining some traction. Early in vertebrate embryonic development, a unique group of cells called neural crest cells form temporarily and then migrate to different locations in the embryo where they are involved with and direct multiple critical events in development. In particular, Neural crest cells are extensively involved in the formation of different tissues and structures that make up the skull, face, and jaw. They're also involved in development of tissues and other organs throughout the body. Now, researchers have studied how changes in different developmental signaling pathways are specifically related to the neural crest, like the ones that we talked about earlier controlling the SOAR CS1 gene. These altered signaling pathways can then affect skull development and cause changes such as retention of juvenile features in the adult skull. These genetic mutations that alter timing of neural crest cell migration also affect formation of melanin-producing cells in fur. Altering when cells migrate results in formation of large patches of white fur. You know the piebald coloration I was talking about earlier? We also know that neural crest cells affect cartilage formation in some regions of the body, so less cartilage being formed in ears could explain why we see floppy ears so often in many domesticated species. Neural crest cells aren't just the subject of domestication studies. Human medical researchers have also identified how causes of some human diseases could be related to mutations that affect neural crest cells and their behavior. So who knows? Results from the Farm Fox study may not only shed light on the history of canine domestication, but they may also provide results that could support finding cures for human diseases. And that, that's something that highlights what I think is one of the, the really important features of science. You never know how research and discoveries in one area might lead to other discoveries that answer questions in another seemingly unrelated field. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode, so let's summarize and wrap things up. Domesticated species have provided important insights on the process and mechanisms driving evolution. 
Through studies of garden peas, Mendel unlocked the mysteries of genetics. Darwin used observations of pigeons, livestock, and crops to formulate his concepts of artificial selection that supported his theory of evolution by natural selection. And then we have the fascinating research of Dr. Dmitry Belyaev, who used creativity and insight to propose how a process like domestication could work. Through an incredibly well-conceived and executed experiment, plus a little bit of luck, his team began the essential work of unraveling the mystery of the genetic factors that underlie domestication. Belyaev's research has provided a foundation of information that has helped us understand not only how we ended up with this small collection of about 15 large animal species that we've domesticated, but also what the steps might have been along the way. If you want to learn more about the Russian farm fox experiment, I can recommend these resources that I used for my research. To hear more about the oppressive state of Russian science, please go listen to the previous Biota episodes on the famous plant hunter Nikolai Vavilov. Of course, there are also many scientific publications that were written by Dr. Belyaev and Dr. Trout that you can access through most academic literature search engines. There's also a wonderful paper written by Dr. Trout that gives a general overview of the experiment, and it was published in the 1999 March-April issue of American Scientist. Dr. Trout also co-authored a book with Lee Dugatkin, and it's titled How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog, Visionary Scientists and a Siberian Tale of Jump-Started Evolution. Dugatkin also wrote an article about the domestication experiment, and it appeared in a 2018 issue of Evolution Education and Outreach. An article on the farm fox experiment was also published in the March 2011 issue of National Geographic, and I point that one out because, and this should be no surprise, it has some incredible pictures of the foxes. You can also find the article challenging the domestication syndrome in Belyaev's research, as well as the replies from Dr. Trout and others in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution. Once again, I also want to thank Terry Gibson for all of her help with editing and developing this episode. I think that covers everything, so once again, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.